Hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Darkest Nightmare. I'm your host, Grandpappy. On today's show, I'm going to mix things up a bit and present you with four different stories. The very last story actually has a happy ending, and it stars someone you probably know very well. See if you can guess who it is before I reveal the name at the end of the show. But enough small talk. Let's get down to the heart of the matter, as it were. Because today, you're going to hear the story of someone's darkest nightmare. Story number one, Elizabeth Mary Isherwood, who preferred to be called Mary, from Wolverhampton, UK, was a 60-year-old who was a retired former policewoman. During her marriage to Clive Isherwood, they had purchased a vacation timeshare cottage together at the Place Talgarth Holiday Complex in Wales. The couple had a son together and raised him in a happy home, but would later divorce after Mary revealed that she'd come out as a lesbian. In spite of this, the couple remained close and continued to raise their son together. After their divorce, they had decided to sell the timeshare cottage, and the management company at the holiday complex said that they could have one last week at the unit as a farewell. Mary was very excited to spend the week in the cottage, but her ex-husband was unable to go with her due to prior commitments. So it was that Mary Isherwood went alone to Wales to enjoy one last week in the holiday cottage she so enjoyed. She arrived at the timeshare on September 23, 2017 and checked in. She enjoyed her evening and later went to bed sometime before midnight. It was after midnight in the early morning hours of September 24th that everything began to go terribly wrong. Sometime in the darkness of those early morning hours, Mary got up to use the bathroom. As she was staying by herself, she got out of bed naked and relieved herself. She then made a navigational error in the darkness and walked into a windowless airing closet located inside the bathroom of her timeshare. The closet was used for storing linens and such and was unlighted. Mary took a wrong turn thinking she was leaving the bathroom only to step into the tiny, dark airing closet. As soon as she stepped inside, 
she realized she'd made a mistake. But when she tried to turn the handle on the door to get out, the doorknob completely fell apart in her hands. Mary was now trapped. Not panicking at first, Mary began to pound on the walls and yell for help. She continued to pound on the walls and call for help probably for hours before she began to realize that apparently no one was hearing her because of the early time in the pre-dawn darkness. So she began to try to break her way out. She pounded on the cupboard door, but it was too solid for her to break through. Being naked in the claustrophobic closet, her options were very limited. So she began to feel around in the darkness for anything she could use to aid in her escape. She tore down all the shelving that was in the airing closet, but none of it proved useful to her. She continued feeling around in the pitch black closet and felt water pipes attached to the wall. She pulled at one of the pipes until it broke away from the wall, immediately drenching her in water. Mary had broken the cold water pipe and now she was being constantly doused by the cold water spewing within the tiny closet. Time became meaningless to Mary inside the airing closet as she could not discern night from day. She alternated between using the pipe to try to pound her way through the door and the walls and by beating on the walls and screaming for help. Unknown to Mary, her pounding on the walls had actually been heard by neighbors on Sunday and following days, but had been misunderstood by them as the sound of construction, which was being completed on some of the other timeshare units to prepare them for sale. Meanwhile, still trapped in the closet, Mary became weaker as she battled not only fatigue and shock from her predicament, she now had the additional danger of hypothermia as the cold water constantly sprayed her naked body, lowering her core temperature. She must have realized that she was losing her fight after days being trapped in the closet. Mary made a last ditch effort to punch holes through the hardened walls. At one point, Mary had actually pierced one of the walls. It was the wall between the airing closet and her bedroom. But, in a cruel twist of fate, there was a picture hanging on the bedroom side of the wall. And when Mary broke through the cupboard wall, she saw the opposite side of the picture in the bedroom and thought it was just more wall in front of her. Feeling defeated, exhausted, and unbearably cold from the water deluge she suffered, Mary lay down in defeat. She had literally been the millimeters of the thickness of the picture inside the frame, away from freedom and salvation when she gave up. Mary's body was discovered a week later by maintenance workers. She had died of hypothermia 
and exhaustion. Mary's official cause of death was listed as accidental by human misadventure. Story number two. Verrucht is a German word meaning crazy or insane. And this was the name of a water slide attraction built at the Schlitterbahn Kansas City Water Park. At a height of 168 feet and 7 inches, Baruch became the world's tallest water slide when it opened on July 10th of 2014. The starting point of the ride at 168 feet was taller than either Niagara Falls or the foot-to-torch portion of the Statue of Liberty. Because it was beyond the 120 feet that zoning codes permitted, the design required a variance. Baruch was designed to consist of two drops, the initial being a 17-story plunge with a five-story uphill midsection. The ride was designed to accommodate three-person rafts, each weighing 100 pounds, and carried up by conveyor to the top of the slide, while the riders themselves climbed 264 steps to the top. To prevent the rafts lifting off the slide, rider groups were weighed twice, once at the bottom and again at the top before being allowed to ride to ensure a combined weight between 400 pounds and 550 pounds and that single riders could not weigh more than 300 pounds. Baruch was originally scheduled to open in June 2013, but difficulties during various stages of construction and testing resulted in several delays. Sandbags loaded into the rafts during testing went airborne. The ride's final design made rafts reach a maximum speed of 70 miles per hour. Farouk was well received upon opening, winning a golden ticket award from Amusement Today in 2014. Two months later, it was voted the world's best new water park ride at the 2014 Golden Ticket Awards. However, at least 13 riders suffered non-fatal injuries such as concussions or slipped and herniated discs, many of which had long-term effects after hitting the netting or being thrown into it. After a Missouri man thrown from the raft suffered facial injuries in June of 2016, the park's operations manager allegedly attempted to cover up the incident, telling lifeguards at the park what to write in their reports, and it's believed that this happened with other incidents as well. Even some uninjured riders were unnerved by Verrucht. A Kansas City man who had made a point of riding due to favorable experiences with the Texas Slitterbond Parks recalled having to grab the raft's auxiliary straps when the Velcro straps holding him in came loose after the first drop. 
He was thankful that his son had used the weight limit as an excuse not to ride with him. A local woman whose boyfriend held her in the raft likewise noted to Esquire magazine that the netting and the hoops on the lower hump showed signs of many human collisions. But the worst was yet to come. On August 7th, 2016, Caleb Schwab, the 10-year-old son of a Kansas State representative, was at the Schlitterbahn Water Park with his parents. Caleb was excited to try out the thrill ride and was placed into the front seat of one of the boats which carried riders down the giant slide. Behind Caleb sat two adult women in seats number two and three. Caleb weighed in at only 74 pounds, while the women behind him respectively weighed 275 pounds and 197 pounds. This created an uneven weight distribution in the boat, which experts concluded might have been offset by Caleb riding between the two women instead of in front of them. Regardless, what happened next was the stuff of nightmares. After the initial drop, the boat was traveling at a high rate of speed, possibly as high as 70 miles per hour, when it hit the second hump in its design. At this point, the boat that Caleb and the two women were riding in went airborne. Caleb, being in the front position in the boat, was propelled with terrible force into the safety netting and the hoops which held the netting in place. He was instantly decapitated as his head was ripped from his body. The boat carrying the two women continued down into the splash pool at the end of the ride. Witnesses reported that Caleb's headless body slid down into the pool behind the boat followed by a shower of blood. Both of the women riding with Caleb were injured as well with one suffering a broken jaw, while the other had fractures of several facial bones. In the aftermath of the tragedy, laws were enacted which took away Schlitter bonds and other such attractions right to self-inspect for safety issues. All future safety inspections would come at regular intervals provided by state inspectors the Baruch water slide was not dismantled until 2018. Story number three. This story will be a retelling in the first person by a person who chooses to remain nameless. It takes place in an apartment building in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. Here is that story told in my voice but from her perspective. I lived in one of the apartments in this building, having taken over the lease from another tenant that I knew. I had previously stayed as a guest in the apartment once in a while, 
visiting before moving in about a year later. The night I stayed as a guest, I crashed on the couch in the living room, only to wake up with the distinct feeling that someone was standing over me, staring at me. It was such an intense feeling and so overwhelming that I had to leave the apartment that night without explaining to my host the real reason why I had to leave. Over time, I passed it off as my imagination. The apartment was so spacious that when I had the opportunity to take over the lease from my friend who was leaving town, I jumped at the chance and I moved in. All seemed normal at first, but things gradually changed. Occasionally, while I was sitting in the living room reading at night, I would hear activity in the kitchen, like someone washing dishes. It was very disconcerting. I started having vivid, recurring dreams of a man in the apartment. One day, as I was getting ready to leave for work, I caught a glimpse of a dark shadow pass by the mirror in the hallway by the door. The shadow appeared to be a person and was heading into the living room. My intuition told me to leave immediately, and that's what I did. One late afternoon, I came home and started going through my mail. All of a sudden, a haze like a thick mist started forming next to me. It looked like a large heavy cloud of smoke right beside me inside the dining area next to where I was standing. I was stunned. Again, I thought I must just be imagining this. The final straw occurred one evening when I was watching American Idol on TV and I was completely absorbed in one of the performances. All of a sudden, my pet took a flying leap off of the couch and raced across the floor and hid under the table. As my attention was suddenly diverted from the TV to my pet, I heard a male voice quite clearly call my name. The voice was right there in the room with me. It was unmistakably audible and chilling. I quickly turned the TV off and grabbed my cell phone. I left the apartment and got a hold of a friend to come over. I had had about enough at that point. I eventually managed to sublet the apartment and chose to leave. I often wonder what happened in that apartment. I do remember that the tenant before me had told me that she had been trying to get into the building for a while, and one day the property manager called her to say that a unit was suddenly available. Given everything that happened to me, I wonder if someone had suddenly passed away in that unit, and that's what I was picking up on. If so, that person was definitely a male, and I'm assuming he's still in there.
story number four. Our final story is going to end on a positive note. This story has all of the elements of life and death. And at the end, I'm going to present the name of the person this story is about. It's someone you know. Here is their story. On September 30th, 1951, a young Army private was trying to return to his base at Fort Ord, California from Seattle, Washington, where he had been visiting his girlfriend. He was in a bit of a bind as he had spent as much time with his sweetheart as he could and now ran the very real risk of returning late from his leave and becoming AWOL, which is a very serious offense in the military. The private had made his way to Naval Air Station Seattle seeking to take advantage of what is known in military parlance as a hop. What this really means is that there is an unwritten rule that servicemen and women will be allowed to fly free of charge on a military flight provided that there is room for them and at the pilot's discretion. This poor army private must have made a pretty pitiful presentation that night as he begged a pair of Navy pilots for a ride as they were preparing to depart for a routine flight to Mather Field in Sacramento, California. Initially, both pilots told the private that he was out of luck. They were flying old World War II era Douglas A-1 Sky Raiders. These were single-seat attack aircraft which would eventually see much service in the Vietnam War. But that was far in the future on this evening. One pilot flatly refused to carry the young soldier, but the other, taking pity on his pleas for help, avoiding an AWOL charge, said that although there was no seat for him, that he could stow in a compartment in the plane that housed electronic equipment. The pilot said that if the soldier could squeeze into the compartment, that he could get a ride, although he doubted it would be a very comfortable one. Feeling thankful for the opportunity, the young airman crammed his frame into the electronics compartment of the Sky Raider, and the pair of planes took off into the skies over the United States' west coast. It wasn't long before the two pilots became enshrouded in a dense fog which had blown in over the area with the storm. They became hopelessly lost in the fog and became separated. Soon, the pilot of the plane in which the private was flying was desperately low on fuel. The pilot had no way of making this known to the soldier because he could not shout over the engine noise and the other noises of the plane hurtling through the Pacific fog. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to the pilot, the private was having troubles of his own in the cramped electronics compartment. Somehow, perhaps owing to the extra human cargo crammed into it, the external door to the compartment had flung itself open in mid-flight, and the soldier was in serious danger of falling out and plummeting to his death. Using ingenuity born of survival instinct, 
the young private was able to use a piece of heavy wire he found to hold the compartment door mostly closed, although falling out remained a real possibility as the plane twisted and turned through the darkness. As the private fought his own battle in the plane, the pilot was losing his. The plane was now almost completely out of fuel and the airman made the only decision he had left, which was to ditch the plane into the Pacific Ocean. Unable to alert his passenger, he could only pray that they both would survive the water impact. As soon as the Sky Raider hit the rough Pacific waters, the soldier was ejected through the door he'd been desperately holding closed and into the icy cold depths. He kicked with all his might following Bubbles up to the surface where he miraculously found the pilot climbing into a life raft. There was a second life raft bobbing close by and the soldier made his way to the raft and climbed inside thankful to be alive. The two men tied their life rafts together and began to paddle toward where the pilot reckoned the California coastline should be. The young soldier would later recall that his mind was filled with stark fear and pure terror as they bobbed in the rough seas filled with great whites and other deadly sharks. The men at some point became separated in their individual rafts as the rough seas broke the bonds securing them. The private continued to paddle in the direction the pilot had provided as being toward the coast, hopeful that the pilot was still safe somewhere behind him. Eventually, the young man was thrown from his raft by strong breakers near a rocky shore. He swam for his life to try to reach the shore, but each time he advanced, the strong undertow would try to pull him out to sea again. He said at one point he almost drowned, but that gave him the push he needed to try again, and his feet finally found the sandy bottom, and he pulled himself to the beach and collapsed upon reaching it. When he came to, he saw distant lights further down the coast and headed towards them. He made his way to the building with the lights and entered the building, teeth chattering with the cold and exhausted from his ordeal. Incredibly, he had found his way into a military coastal radio station and he told the radio operator on site in a near incoherent rambling voice about the plane crash and his fight for survival. After a brief rest in the radio station where he got the chance to warm up, the private was taken to the Coast Guard lifeboat station at Point Reyes, California, where he was reunited with the pilot of his ill-fated plane. The pilot had been plucked from the ocean by a rescue boat and taken to Point Reyes. They were given medical attention and both eventually returned to their respective military units. Not many people 
might have heard of that young Army private survival story from the Korean War era, but most would know his name now. That young soldier's name was Clinton Eastwood Jr. Clint Eastwood. And now, as Paul Harvey would have famously said, you know the rest of the story. I'd like to thank you for joining me on another episode of Darkest Nightmare. I hope that you've enjoyed the content and that you'll subscribe to this channel and never miss a new episode, which comes out every week, sometimes twice a week. I would encourage you to visit the channel's website at www.darkestnightmare, just one word, darkestnightmare.com. Once again, www.darkestnightmare.com. There you'll find picture galleries to accompany each of the episodes you hear. The galleries show the real people and places described in the show and give further insight into the stories. As always, Darkest Nightmare is researched and written by Zane Rankin and hosted by yours truly, Grandpappy. <laughs>